13 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, we go straight into it uh, out in the world of business. And uh, my next guest already shooting from the hip out on Twitter. And uh, he's certainly no stranger to all of us here. Uh, Roy Motoni is an analyst out at APSA Asset Management. Roy, good evening to you and welcome, man. Good evening. Hey, Abonga. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. I'm well, thanks. Already shooting from the hip. Uh, and uh, maybe you might want to just share some of the context. Uh, uh, you are saying here in your tweet, the public sector spends money in three main buckets, wages, social grants, infrastructure. Spot the odd one out. Help us there, Roy. Context, but also, which one's the odd one? Well, the thing is, I think your comment about um, Lesitia Hanyago um, saying that there's a public sector investment strike, mm. I think is what brought that thought into yes, my mind yeah. because... The private sector, you can see, is reinvesting in terms of increasing inventories um, and, and also broader investment is coming through, mm-hmm. but the public sector isn't. Yeah, but, yeah. but the thing is, you, the public sector has a limited pool of, of capital, mm. which is basically tax and borrowings. The public sector's job, it pays its own wages, mm. it pays social grants, so it provides a sa- social safety net. Mm. And it invests in infrastructure. In the last 10 years, all we've seen is exponential increase in the wage, sure, in the wage bill sure. without a proportionate increase in productivity. We've seen that the, the social safety net also growing for good reason, but well in excess of um, where, where the economy was growing. So where's all of that been funded from? It's from infrastructure not growing. So there's... You, you can't have it all. You, you you have to balance your resources across those three. And at different points in time, the emphasis is different. And it's clear that this, mm. this government has chosen to focus on the wage bill and on social grants. So we're seeing them yeah. pushing back heavily on the wage bill, but it's very difficult yeah. once, Look, you, once you've gotten used to 6 7% yeah. um, wage increases to, to fall away from that. And I do think, I mean, Roy, just on that, that uh, we probably are setting ourselves or the stage has been set for a potential public sector strike this year. I mean, if, just if you think about what's happening out at SARS, if you think about what's happening out at the uh, Public Sector Coordinating Bargaining Council. But I think that the point, the other point you made there, which is, I guess, your suggestion that, you know, social grants and public sector wages crowd out infrastructure. I mean, I'd understand it if effectively a lot of the agencies that were supposed to be spending, even what they've been allocated, were spending it. Because here's, here's the reality of it. I mean, we've got a bus rapid transit system. Billions have been allocated over the last few years or so. Very little of that spent. Prasa, billions unspent. Um, and I mean, the show, you know, I could extend it to so many other areas where ideally the state has made the allocations, notwithstanding what they pay in public sector wages and social grants, but the allocations have either gone back, gone unspent, or in some cases have been spent on what they should not have been spent on. So, so that, that talks to capacity to deploy. So, and, and that's the thing about infrastructure. You require capacity. You need mm. engineering capacity. You need a construction industry. You need the expertise. And you need the projects. So... So it's very difficult. You, you don't do these things in one budgetary mm, year. These sure, are, these are, sure. Most of these projects last multiple years. And if all you're doing is dealing with a budget each year and telling people they must spend this year or they won't get next year, 
the the capacity to deliver diminishes. So so it's it's complex. It's not as simple mm. as saying it's those three and they favor the other two. It's easier to pay wages. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. You you hire people on the payroll, you pay them. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But if, if if you're going to improve the water supply, you need to get engineers. You need to sign mm. contracts with Lesotho. You need to get the pipes in place. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a whole lot of other things that go into sure. it. It's and the I guess hardest bit to do. I like that point you just made, that, that sometimes the comparison might not be apples with apples because of the time horizon. Long gestation mm-hmm. periods with infrastructure, whereas wages and social grants are immediate. Operating costs now. You need that money mm-hmm. every month to go out. But let, let's maybe shift away from that. I guess uh, that was me just picking up uh, <laughs> you shooting from the hip there out on uh, the Twitter streets. But Roy, I want us to start with what triggered that. Comments out in the uh, statement of the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, and I guess one of the things they were saying there was that private investment has proved resilient, more than expected. Tourism, hospitality and construction in the private space seeing some recovery. But uh, investment by government weakening significantly in recent years and uh, even that of the SOEs forecast to be very mod- uh, modest. And I think that makes sense if you think about what we heard from Sunral yesterday. All of these things, what do they mean uh, for all of the things the Monetary Policy Committee considers to make the decision they made today, which I must say was really, really harsh, very, very cold? So you have to think about it in, in a number of ways. So the role of the Monetary Policy Committee is to address inflation. If you keep inflation low, Mm. if you keep price increases low, then it is easier to plan in the economy um, and you don't have dislocation. Now, usually prices rise because of a growing economy and growing demand. That's why it's easiest to hike rates, to choke off that demand um, and let the economy settle. Our biggest problem is the inefficiencies on the supply side are what causes a lot of this inflation. And some of this inflation comes from overseas. There's no way of controlling that. You could control it by being more productive, by being more efficient in how you produce or reducing your cost of doing business. Um, and, and then you allow demand to grow. But the, the truth is the Monetary Policy Committee has no control over that. That's, that's the role of sure, Treasury. Sure. Um, and that's what we're saying. Put in the infrastructure, bring the power, put the water. Maybe you get a bit more efficient, means that we can grow a bit faster without necessarily increasing, um, the, without, without exceeding demand. So, so all these guys can do is ensure that inflation remains predictable and that low levels and expectations remain low. And that they do using these interest rates. There's also another thing. You're seeing globally people hiking rates aggressively. So the U.S. is hiking, went up to 50 basis points, and the developed nations are all hiking. You, you can only be in a certain gap away from them before capital starts leaving because of more, more interesting um, returns in those countries. So they, they also look at it and say, if we, if we keep our interest rates low and capital leaves, the rand weakens, and when the rand weakens, we import inflation. We import inflation, we increase our inefficiency, we struggle. So they're in a tight spot. Mm-hmm. They have to keep that gap with global rates um, quite tight. And so capital doesn't leave, and it, al- it gives us an opportunity. I mean, if you think about it, if you think we're badly off, Egypt hiked by 200 basis points. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was, yeah. I think, to either yesterday or today. Um, Brazil's been hiking aggressively for over a year already. 
Um, so, so I think these guys are being conservative and they're treading a very fine line, knowing very well that our demand situation isn't that strong. Mm. But they have, so they have to encourage it to grow, but they can't afford to be left behind because that would encourage inflation from a demand perspective. So, so they can't crush demand too much, but they can't let it continue growing too, too aggressive. But I think the, that's the issue... That's the only tool yeah, they have. But the issue, Roy, and, and, and I think you're right, I mean, just the, the practice of central banking, especially mm-hmm. insofar as, you know... Um, the use of this particular instrument, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Lending rates to achieve a particular outcome or to mitigate inflationary risk and all of that is often a science, and even said today, it's more an art than a science because you kind of have yes. to pick what others are going to do because of how m- mobile money is across borders. Granted, mm-hmm. I get that, and I think that's the point you're making. But I think mm-hmm. there's another implication that uh, many people are raising, which I don't think we must dismiss. And it's this view that says, what is the unintended or even intended consequence of when you know you've got very weak demand conditions? I think they even say so here that despite some recovery in household spending, things are still very, very bad. And then what you do is you sort of increase rates further. But I think furthermore, what implications does that have for people who make investment decisions driven by where the interest rate is, might be to get more plant, might be... So in the operational side of the economy, what becomes the implication? I think a lot of people are saying you effectively are choking the economy because you're so scared of what inflation might look like insofar as your target band is concerned, rather than, I guess, keeping the economy going. So think about it this way. What is the binding constraint in the economy? It is the availability of capital or savings. We are a savings short society based on our need to grow because our people are young, they haven't accumulated wealth, mm. um, and we don't have those savings that would allow us to invest. So a lot of the time, we need to attract savings from overseas. So we have to decide if we need to invest, if we need to attract savings from overseas, um, from places where they don't need the capital, all they need is a return then we have to keep interest rates artificially high. Now, what's the corollary to that? Then you should have the other arms of government and the private sector looking to reduce your cost of operating here so that we are more efficient and we generate our own savings. And as we grow our savings, then the cost of capital diminishes. Our biggest problem is we are a small open economy mm. and we get our, 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 our investment from the global pool. The global pool has many people looking for, for capital. Um, there's the Asian tigers, there's everyone. Sure. And we are competing there. So, so if we decide that we'll keep our interest rates low, that money will not come and we don't have capital. You see, so, sure. so then we are tied. So, so we, we have to decide. Um, as we keep these rates high um, and favor the savers, which means um, at least the capital stock grows, mm. we need to be doing something. We need to be educating our people. We need to be putting down the roads. We need to be fixing the railways. We need to be putting power um, to make it worthwhile for capital to come. And over time, what happens is those, the natural rate of interest sure. actually falls because we're more efficient. We're producing more stuff. And we've generated our own savings. Maybe just before we let this one go, uh, mm-hmm. Roy, just on that. I mean, one of the other things that uh, the governor was lamenting in the statement he read on behalf of the Monetary Policy Committee 
is where yields are on our in our sovereign bond markets. And uh, I think it goes back to the point you just made, that we issue bonds in order to raise capital to finance alongside our taxes, all of the things we want in the public side of things. But similarly, I think private sector and even households borrow as well um, in the same markets as well. And I'm quite interested in your thoughts on why he says, well, you know, bond yields are not in good territory. And are we likely to see, I guess, the response we saw in earlier times, which is, I guess, to go and buy these bonds in the secondary market? I mean, our bond yields are high. Uh, uh, last time I checked, the 10 years at about 10%. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is high. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's a reflection of our structural weakness. If, when people look at us, they'll say, you know what, right now we're quite lucky. We've got a, we've got a trade surplus because demand is weak and the commodity cycle is carrying us. How long is that going to be? We've got a budget surplus. We've got, we've got a very small budget deficit. But now we need to raise wages. Um, that, that windfall from taxes from the commodity cycle, how long is that going to last? If those two things, if the commodity cycle goes away, then suddenly we are over-indebted. And as it is, even today, when things are looking this good from that macro perspective, interest is already the biggest item on the budget. Mm-hmm. You see, so, 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 that, so that's the thing. People see the risks associated with, um, with our current situation, and that's why they demand higher interest rates. At the end of the day, like I said, we're a small open economy. We, comp- we compete on the global stage for savings. Um, the attraction to us would be when we either offer opportunities or offer higher rates of return. Right now, it seems to be higher rates of return because we don't have the opportunity. We've got risks, we've got problems, we've got troubles that you and I have spoken about over the past couple of yeah, years. Yeah. Um, so, so, so people say you, you, need, you need to pay up if you want our capital. And that's the reality. Maybe before we just let this one go briefly, Roy, um, I've got a mortgage out on my house, say a car installment I need to pay. We're going to be talking about that insofar as the taxi sector is concerned in the next few minutes. But uh, for all of the credit active consumers listening to us, this pain, what impact will it have? And I guess what is the expectation for subsequent quarters? Uh, Because I guess they have given some signals about what rates might potentially do in the coming months. So rates are going up, that's for sure. Your monthly outlay goes up by tomorrow. Um, Your bank will reset, your car will reset, your credit card will reset, your microloan will reset by by an equivalent amount or slightly higher, which means um, that, well, and the the only thing which will not reset is your salary. Um, Nobody's going to increase your salary because of interest rates. So what that means is your ability to spend diminishes. So you're going to have to be a lot sharper on what you buy, um, maybe make some trade-offs, um, have a few less luxuries and that sort of thing. So it is going to be harder, but that's what they want to do. The only thing they can do is stop you from spending or slow down your spending. And in that way, they, they, they actually maintain inflation expectations quite low. Our, our biggest problem right now, actually, is the fact that because of the inflation we're seeing, the demand for wage growth have increased tremendously. And, and that's, that's a never-ending cycle. You, you look and you say, inflation is rising, I want higher wages. So the wages go up, which means inflation goes up, but your productivity didn't go up. So that means inefficiency goes up, so inflation rises again. So they're trying to nip that in the bud right from the beginning. It's painful, 
but these are the consequences um, of of how um, our our economy has developed. Our productivity hasn't risen. If our productivity rose, then it would be easier to raise wages because the wages would be paid for from productivity. But that hasn't happened. Mm. Roy, let's shift away from that one. And uh, yeah, <laughs> tough times, man. Fuel prices are up. Interest uh, repayments are up on cars, on homes. Uh, food prices are going up. And uh, I don't know if uh, uh, your wages have gone up. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Not even close. <laughs> Tough times, Roy. But uh, you know, one person who might not be sharing, uh, you know, they always say misery loves company. Well, it seems the Afromat types are not going to be joining us in our misery because iron ore prices that are relatively favorable, backing them, and uh, also a potential play in the rare earth metal space. What's that? So, so Afromat is a perfect example of long term planning and conservative company management coupled with strong luck. Uh, there is no doubt. You need luck to succeed in this world. Mm. So there were originally uh, a quarry that used to produce building materials. Um, Andres van Heerden, the CEO, saw the cycle turning, and he went and he bought some end-of-life mines, iron ore mines. The iron ore price turned, and that made money for them. And instead of paying it out, he bought another mine, another mine not, very, not, not betting the house on it, but another mine that could keep growing, and, and that's exactly what's happened. So now, in this cycle where commodity prices are high, he's generating a lot of cash from that iron ore, but he hasn't sat back on his laurels. Now he's moved into manganese, into potash, because that's the next cycle. Mm. Um, these, are, these rare earths are those things that we need from an ESG perspective on a post-coal world um, where... Where, where you have all of these um, renewable, where you need renewable energy and efficient efficient machinery, so he's guaranteeing that the company continues to have a place and not and, and continues to evolve as demand for minerals evolves. And it's not a big company; it's just that they've managed the expansion in a responsible way, taking care of the employees, taking care of shareholders, and taking care of the future. So this, if you're a shareholder, you've done really well from what i can see even employees have done well um and and the, the visionary nature of this management team it continues to pay off mm, mm. and then i mean i guess from one story to the next one more favorable but the other for mass Mart, not looking too good uh, and yes. i guess uh, you know maybe the only silver lining is that they've managed to offload some of their more marginal underperforming assets uh, out in the uh, lower end of the marketplace. Uh, gay, what is that? Uh, Cambridge Foods, Rhino, Cambridge all of Foods, that. Yes. Yeah. So, so this, this one is a tough story. These guys have really struggled. They've gone through turnaround after turnaround. Um, and the numbers don't look that strong either. It mm. looks like it's a weak start to the year. So builders and gain sales fell. Micro sales grew. Um, I think a little bit of that was... Um, uh, alcohol and, and liquor sales sure. are recovering, um, and also wholesale cash and carry. But yes, it's still early days for these guys. The, the numbers on a quarter-on-quarter basis just tend to look very weak. They haven't seen the bottom yet, and and it's a struggle. Like you said, if people are struggling um, to keep up with inflation, um, general merchandise is where it's going to suffer. Um, you're, you're going to cut back on your spending, so companies such as these will struggle. So, 
No, it's difficult. Um, so you're operating in a difficult environment with an uncertain, um, with a weak business model and an uncertain future. That's a difficult place to be. And I don't think you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel yet for these guys. Oh, yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, the other question here is, what do you keep in this portfolio? Because as you're saying, I mean, with a macro, you're probably, I guess, uh, getting the benefit of some of that volume, speaking to a market that is a bit different to what you had on the lower end of the segment. But the big problem still remains at game. And uh, I'm sitting here asking yeah. myself, what do you do with that? Um, you know, if uh, household spending doesn't recover in the way that you need or people aren't really spending on big ticket items? Yeah, you have to ask yourself, what's the point of game? Because builders paid its way. Um, when there's a building boom, they were definitely up there. They sold great volumes. It's expected that volumes are not so good now. So mm. but that's a business that over time will pay its way. Macro, reasonably okay. It combines the best of both worlds. Um, the cash and carry business was fantastic because that, you know, previously that was their big forte. They, they supplied goods into the townships and the small spaza shops. They, they literally served as their warehouses. That's where they won, but they let that business go, and now they have to try and rebuild some form of that. Game, I really don't know. That, 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 that one, I think they've gone through a lot of soul-searching about its relevance and what it should look like and what it should stock, mm. um, and, and I don't think they have an answer yet. But, but you're right, that is where the problem is. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know if uh, that gets resolved anytime soon. But maybe circling back to all of the stuff we've been talking about, uh, because a big part of what Lesecha Khanyaho is talking about also is um, what some of what he observes insofar as, you know, there's always this price-wage story. So when mm-hmm. prices rise, they trigger, you know, bigger bargaining and uh, much higher relative wages and all of that. But it seems in the U.S., um, ever since COVID came on, um, they've kind of had some very interesting examples, one for the textbooks, if I can say, because, you know, all manner of incentives just trying to get people to go and work because many people have just opted out of the labor market. It seems now, when we check all the unemployment insurance numbers coming through, more people filing for unemployment insurance than what we've seen, uh, I guess, in uh, the earlier months. What's happening in the U.S. economy and what implications is it going to have for us here? So this is a very interesting one, and I think it summarizes what happened there. So during COVID, what you had was people being given free money um, and subsidies to not work. Um, And that increased demand for consumer stuff, actual Mm. goods, because people are sitting at home. They had cash. They had all they could do was invest online and um, and buy goods right online. So the companies, Amazon, Walmart, Target and all of those invested in logistics, employed more people. and, and increase the inventory and everything. And now you're on the other side where um, the economy is opened up, demand has declined because those transfers are not there anymore, mm. and people are spending less on goods. I mean, once you bought a big 30-inch um, 30, 30 screen or whatever, you're not going to buy another one. Okay, if you buy another one, you're going to buy a third one. Um, so what you want now is experiences. You want to leave the house. You want to travel. You want to move around. So, so what's happened is those companies are all finding we've overemployed, we have too much in inventory, and demand is declining, so we're struggling with turnover. So what you do, you have, you know, in that place, they fire people, it's employment at will. They'll, they'll reduce their numbers suddenly um, because they have to cope in some way. The inventory, you can't trash it, you have to sell it. 
converted into cash over time. So you reduce your workforce. So effectively what you're seeing is the, high, the combination of high interest rates, reduced liquidity, and reduced economic activity. Um, reduced growth in economic activity is leading to people being laid off. Um, so, so, so the aggressive monetary policy there is actually beginning to work in some way. Um, so, so we'll see where this settles. And I think this is what each time the Monetary Policy Committee there meets, the Fed, when it meets, has to decide. Have we done enough that the economy now can cool down mm. without taking unemployment to too far, too far away from our target? I, I think you're seeing the turnaround beginning to happen, and these are the numbers that are showing you. Yes, there's weakness in the economy. Um, yes, some of the excesses are being taken out. Mm. But do, do we have the bottom yet? We don't know. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's difficult. It's like trying to call the platinum prices or what's going to happen to commodity prices for us here in South yeah. Africa. A lot of people attempted, but um, I always think it's just looking at a crystal ball. I think even throwing the bones is more scientific than that. <laughs> it's, it's like trying to land an aircraft carrier on a postage stamp. It's not going to happen. There's going to be pain um, before, before things get better. You're, you're, you're going to overreact on the downside in the same way we overreacted on the upside. And you're already seeing that mm. pain in markets. Markets must come down. Next time, share a picture of us, uh, with us on Twitter of uh, a postage stamp that you've got at the post office. That's the, cha- <laughs> that's the challenge I give to you, Roy Mutoni. Good evening to you and well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. Awesome stuff. Roy Mutoni, the analyst at EPSA Asset Management. Yeah, that's the challenge I'm putting to Roy.